This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and tonight I get to welcome back a regular to the program, Margaret Light, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and now an owner of her own business, Equilibrium Therapy Services. Welcome back and congratulations, Margaret. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me back and thank you. It's super exciting. So before I let you know what we're talking about, let's get a word from our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Are you tired of searching for trained technicians? If so, let Napa Auto Tech help you build a technician with their Build-A-Tech program, kind of like Build-A-Bear. These three-day courses cover one of four individual topics, brakes, electrical, steering and suspension, or HVAC through a combination of classroom lecture, hands-on, and utilizing training mock-ups. Visit NapaAutoTech.com. I guess about what happened with my dad. Recorded an episode last week about it and just the the 4 a.m. phone call and the update is, is he is now out of the hospital. He's in assisted living. While he was at the hospital, I think when I, what I left everybody with was he might have been out of the ICU and they're going to do an angiogram to try to figure out why did his heart stop. But the angiogram came back clean so they could find no blockages. And really, I think the honest truth is, is they don't know. So they have to go with probabilities. And the probability then is he, went into a tachycardia, probably uh, ventricular. So the bottom of his heart started beating out of sync with the top of the heart, which I guess without going down a rabbit hole of that, the, the bottom of the heart does a lot of the majority of the work. So if that went to tachycardia, it could have decided, decided to just stop beating. And then almost unexplainable sequences of events leading up to and then following the cardiac arrest, he's in the ICU at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And then even though he misses some benchmarks, for lack of a better word, recovers to the point of being able to be moved out of the ICU, spends about roughly a week in the hospital. They put in a ICD, which is basically his own defibrillator. So they monitor his heart. If it would go... I don't even want to say tachycardia, just even if it starts beating out of uh, rhythm, if it goes arrhythmic, then it can edge him back into uh, sinus rhythm. And if it needs to, really hammer him to defibrillator, get his heart going again. So he's in assisted living right now, recovering from that. So with that happening, and soon after it, the, the the cardiac arrest and at the hospital and the stuff being kind of dark. You, you know what I mean? Maybe not full-blown doom and gloom, but it wasn't, it was not happy. Happy is alive, but then wondering what, is the, what did that mean? What does that mean? And how this may go. And then a rant, well, I shouldn't say it. It isn't all that random. It's the end of the year and beginning of the new year. So 2024 there's a lot of stuff up on uh, various uh, streaming services, but mainly YouTube, right, is when you catch the in memory of and various outlets going through the year and all the celebrities and maybe politicians or whatever, but people of that, that are known, celebrities across the board, one way or the other, going through all those. And that's, it's really sad. It's shocking. And then after that, I got a link to a uh, video by Anderson Cooper doing a segment for, I think it was CBS Sunday morning about dealing with grief and his grief. His mother was Gloria Vanderbilt and a brother that committed suicide, a father that died while he was very young and him running away from his grief. And I'm, I'm watching this thinking like, however many steps there are to grief, I might have started it, but I got to pull the eject cord. Like I got out of it, but a lot of people don't. And I would have been heading down that road knowing that there's a process I'm going to go through whether I want to or not and not really understanding it. And then 
almost like survivor's guilt, maybe a bad analogy, but like a survivor's guilt for people I know who have lost their, or people close to them. It won't have to be a parent, anyone really close to them and maybe feeling bad, but really not knowing if how to help them or deal to be a good support system for them uh, if need be. So now that I've talked for the first half of the episode, I will turn it over to you because I just dumped a whole bunch of stuff on you. So I think the first thing I think about is when we think about grief, there's this question of what is it? Traditionally, when we hear the word grief, we think about the death of, of a loved one, right? Friend, family member, et cetera. But in the broadest sense, grief is our reaction to a loss. And actually, that loss can be any number of things. It can be the death of a friend or a family member, but it can also be the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job. It can have to do with, this is horrible, but if a parent has a child that goes missing or is abducted, there's a lot of grief there. There can be grief and loss around changes in health status. So it's actually not uncommon for events like this, even though you wouldn't be grieving the loss of a parent to grieve the loss of maybe a change in how you see your dad or how you think about his health or even for him as he recovers to experience some grief around what does this mean for him and what does it mean for sort of his aging or for any of your family members. So grief is actually this really broad concept that then it's helpful to be specific about what type of grief are we talking about or what kind of loss are we talking about? Because we even classify loss into kind of our stereotypical loss, which is the death of a family member and that may be expected or when someone's elderly and then the whole spectrum of there into ambiguous loss, a little more complicated and has to do with emotions and people who are physically present but not emotionally present or people who are no longer physically present but are still emotionally really much on someone's mind. But then there's also other types of grief. And so sometimes what we're dealing with is complicated grief for people, which is with normal grief, we expect it to be really painful early on. And then over the course of time, that gets less heavy. It starts to switch and change. People readjust to life. They're able to move forward in some thoughtful ways. Maybe that grief flares up around certain anniversaries or events or holidays. But for the most part, they're able to integrate that experience and move forward. Complicated grief is when people actually get stuck in it and it gets worse over time or they just get frozen. Is there comfort in staying in that? What loss I've had, there's sometimes there's a little bit of just feeling bad about maybe not feeling as bad about it as I used to. Like it used to bother me this much. And then after a few years, I never forgot. I never forget. But it's just not as much of a weight as it felt like before. And then feeling bad about that, do some people throw it in reverse and back up to get back into that feeling that weight again or that pain, emotion, stress? In my experience, the way I hear people describe it when they're stuck in grief, it isn't about comfort with those uncomfortable feelings. It's more about a sense of this is the last thing I have left of this person and I'm afraid that if I let it go then they really are gone or then I really have nothing left of them. And there are certain types of loss that pose a higher risk for complicated grief. So then we're dealing with like traumatic loss, things that are really sudden, accident, the death of a child, suicide. When someone ages and passes away, it's really sad, but we consider it part of the life cycle and we have really well-defined rituals around celebration of life, funerals, churches that helps people move forward or we have some kind of those like comfort statements of they lived a good life or feeling like someone's affairs are wrapped up. Whereas if it's sudden or traumatic in some way, a lot of that stuff isn't present. There might still be a funeral, but what do you say to someone whose spouse died in a horrible car accident to 
to give comfort. Like there, there's just nothing. Part of what you described there just reminds me of hoarding is the first thing that came to mind. You know, I, I can't get rid of this because this is the last or one of the last things I have of theirs or that links us, links me to them. And if I throw that away, then I might forget or I'm losing that last piece of them. Not that it would have to go to a hoarding disorder, but I think a lot of us have things around the house that we would probably never keep except almost feeling obligated to keep it. I think that's where we get into what is normative grief look like? What is the grieving process and how do we move forward through that? And how do we integrate that grief into our life, right? So keeping an object or two around the house that was a a favorite friend or family members who've passed away, that doesn't really negatively impact us and might actually serve a really positive function of when we see that thing, we smile or think of them or, right, like it's a way to honor their memory. So that stuff is actually a really healthy part of grief and integration. Where it can become problematic, is this something that's getting in the way of daily life or from someone's ability to experience joy, right? Are you canceling every plans with friends to go visit a gravesite? It's great to do that. Sometimes some people find a lot of comfort in that. But if what you're doing is isolating and only doing that, now that might be hurting more than helping. So I I think it's hard to have the conversation without talking about the process. I mean, I I, I could be wrong, and that's why you're here, (laughs) is to straighten me out, give accurate information to the listeners. But it it makes me think of um, an interview with an evolutionary biologist, and his wife's an evolutionary biologist, and that they know there's like a process of conflict as a couple or as humans, they are both well aware of it. They know the steps intimately well. And yet if they do have a conflict, they do have an argument with one another. They have to go through this process, even though they know about it. And I find grief seems somewhat like that. The process of grief is you can be well aware of it, know it intimately well. And yet if you're experiencing it, you have to go through it. A lot of folks now are familiar with Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, which I think can be helpful in normalizing people's experiences. And what we know about the reality of grief is it isn't a linear process. You don't just move from one stage to the next and then you're done. It's actually a lot of back and forth, up and down, right? In this moment, I'm angry. In this moment, I feel like I have something acceptance. In this moment, I'm in denial, right? And that can even switch throughout the day, especially early on. It's really a roller coaster. And so I think you do very much have to just experience grief. It's not a thing we can skip over or pass. Some people try to avoid it or ignore it, but that's actually when we can also end up in complicated grief territory. You have to feel those feelings. And it's good to know it's normal, right? And sometimes grief, especially early on, can really mimic depression in that feeling really down or low, right? Low motivation, low energy, sleep problems. Even physical pain can be a symptom of grief, irritability, memory loss. Spiritually, there can be a lot of changes for people. Some people feel closer to whatever their spiritual beliefs are. Some people feel farther away and have a lot of questions about it, feelings of shock. And just riding that roller coaster through it, knowing that it's normal and knowing that it's not going to stay as intense as it is right in that moment forever. I think that perspective piece is really important because a lot of times when people are grieving, it can be scary, especially if it's a more intense emotional experience for them than they're used to. There can be a lot of fear around, why do I feel this way? Why are my moods changing so rapidly? When is it going to pass? What if I'm overwhelmed by it? And even that can make folks a little anxious. And so being able to maintain a little bit of perspective of as awful as it feels right now, 
if you're feeling those emotions and letting them sit and doing some of the tasks of grief, which we'll talk about, they're going to get less intense. It's going to be less frequent. It's going to feel more like waves than drowning in it. And eventually it'll, it'll shift and change. And really what we know now is it's not truly that grief just evaporates. It just changes and gets less present in everyday life, right? I mentioned earlier, there are still times where it's going to flare up, right? Anniversaries, holidays, birthdays, things like that. But even that over time with some intentionality can shift and be less overwhelming and almost turn into a time for like fondness and recollection than really intensely feeling the let of that person being physically present. Some friends that have passed, grandparents. Yeah, I, I, I know I missed them. I'd much rather they were here, but often the memories are uh, smiling, smiling or laughing, whatever events or maybe something they, one of their mannerisms or something. Yeah, I would say overwhelmingly usually are pretty positive. And that's actually a sign of having moved through that grieving process, right? That's a really good thing. And if folks haven't totally worked through that process, then there's going to be a lot more avoidance, sadness, or even just not wanting to hold those memories at all. I would say I lucked out, though. I got a pretty good support system of family and friends so not everybody not everybody is so lucky Uh, and just thinking about and something that i think we've talked about just in the past in general is this the profession itself is primarily filled i think with personality types that would throw the shields up throw the walls up right away leave me alone i'll get through this maybe not actually saying that to anybody but definitely Sending out signals of back off, leave me alone, I got this. And then on the flip side, if those shields would go down, even for a moment, particularly at work, the people there, coworkers, colleagues, may not feel all that comfortable being the the recipient of that, of having somebody open up about their grief or trying to open up about it or unwittingly opening up about it and now potentially making it totally without any intent. There's no ill intent on their part, but being uncomfortable and not knowing what to do or what to say or how to act or how to react and potentially making a a situation where that person that is grieving did drop the shields is now really throwing them up. They just got taller and thicker. And, and working through that, kind of knowing as the person experiencing grief, what to do. And then as somebody around somebody that may be experiencing grief, just some pointers on how to be a little more comfortable about that. Because I, I think it unites us, right? If you care about anything, eventually you're going to experience grief, but be it a human or like you said, a a hobby, a job, your health, your, a pet. We're we're all going through that at some point. If you, if you care or love something at all, it's it's probably going to go away. And now you are going to experience it. That should unite us all as human beings. Therefore, it makes sense to just have a little bit of an idea of what, what to do or what not to do. So, yeah, you're 100% right. Loss is going to be an inevitable part of life. And anytime we have any type of attachment to whatever that thing is that we've lost, we're going to experience some grief, right? I will say, if we struggle to sit with our own grief or acknowledge our own vulnerability or difficult emotions, we're probably going to struggle to do that with other people as well. And like you said, then we're harming ourselves and other people, right? Because some of the ways people talk to themselves when they're experiencing grief in an effort to just make it go away, they'll literally berate themselves for feeling sad or they'll say, I shouldn't be feeling sad. Of course you should. Like, that's a normal human emotion. And 
right? If that's what you're saying to yourself with your own grief, that impulse is going to come up with other people as well. It's two different questions there, right? How do we support ourselves when we're grieving and how do we support someone else who's grieving? Let's start with supporting ourselves. The normal external stuff and then there's the internal stuff, right? External stuff is going to be like continuing to take care of yourself, right? Create some type of routine if needed. Know that it's normal to feel low motivation and just to feel like you not care, you don't care, but then going through the steps anyways, right? Just knowing that, being patient with yourself. Usually we, re- we recommend postponing major life changes, right? If a family member dies and then within a week you're seeking a divorce, you probably want to pause on that, right? Don't make major decisions when you're grieving, just like they tell you after surgery, don't drive, don't make major decisions. Same idea with grief. Let that settle for a bit. Reaching out for support, right? Really thinking about who are my friends or family members who I know are reliable, who I'm confident are going to show up or who have given some indicators that they're going to show up, right? Because usually before we're in the grieving process, we can evaluate people and know, yes, this is someone who's going to respond well to this probably. So being really intentional about seeking support early and often from people that you trust who are going to show up for you. Talking about it, journaling about it, acknowledging it within yourself, going for a walk, like whatever your thing is that gives you some space to just to get in touch with those emotions and know what they are is going to be helpful because I think of it like a pressure cooker, right? Even labeling emotions to ourselves, you don't even have to do it out loud, helps step down the intensity of those emotions. It's not going to make them go away, but it's going to take off some of the pressure. And if we don't do that, it's going to build and build until we blow. And you may or may not be in a scenario where that's a good setting or where you're around people who are even going to know how to respond to it. And then also really being intentional about thinking about ways to honor that loved one or that thing, whatever it is, right? Whether that's specific items, there's all sorts of keepsakes anymore, right? If someone's inheriting something. Sometimes it can even be a little not so literal. So thinking about a thing that the two of you did together, going and doing that in their memory or a food, I had a grandma, I cooked her lemon meringue pies. That was her thing. And I always made them for her. That's something I have really fond memories of. And so that's what I do on the anniversary of her death is I make a single serving lemon meringue pie. And I think about grandma and like, it's really good. But it's also really intentional, right? These things aren't just going to fall out of the sky and hit us. We really have to think about how do I honor this person and keep them with me even though they're gone. So that's the, how do we take care of ourselves, right? The other half of the question is, how do we support someone who's grieving? So some of that, especially early on in grief and depending on what the loss is, can be really practical help. So you're not going to make the grief go away, but if somebody's lost, say a spouse, think about things like Providing childcare, helping around the house, doing transportation, preparing food. If this person that they lost was part of their everyday lives, there are some practical things there that we can do to show up for someone so that they just have one less thing to think about. If that wasn't the role this person held, maybe those practical things aren't as helpful. Although in full reality, a few meals is going to make anybody's life better. There's that, right? And then we think about the acknowledgement piece of it. So that can be the kind of traditional flowers, card, right? Donating money to an organization that was really meant something to that person or would have a symbolic meaning to those who are left behind. That could be really useful. Even just naming it to that person and asking them how they're doing. I think sometimes people get this fear of, I don't want to ask or I don't want to say it out loud or I don't want to make them think about it if they're not. But when you're in, especially in those early stages of grief, you're thinking about it all the time or could be. 
So like having someone ask you about it isn't going to make you think about it more. It's just going to give you permission to say how they're doing. Being available and being patient, right? And even just acknowledging when someone's grieving, there is quite literally nothing we can say to take away their grief. So the idea that like, how do I make it better? How do I fix it? The reality is you're not going to. Well, that goes against our grain. That's what we do is we fix things. This is a hard sell, but you can't fix it. Unless you can bring people back from the dead and then prolong life indefinitely, you aren't going to fix it. I I mean, I was going to start taking up that endeavor, but now I don't have to, but... You could still go for the prolonging life indefinitely thing, though. Uh, It's a rough one. So you're not going to fix it. So even just acknowledging that within yourself of sometimes people go into these scenarios and, and they feel almost like a failure if they don't feel like the person is happy now by the end of the conversation. Let's just erase that to begin with, because that's making it about you. And this, this scenario isn't about you. It's about the person who's grieving. Looking to make yourself feel better by trying to make them feel better or at least trick you into thinking they feel better because of something you did or said. And sometimes, I mean, this is, can be one of those honesty is the best policy moments of, I know I can't fix this for you, but I want you to know I'm here for you or whatever your language is. And don't offer like the false platitudes of, I know how you're feeling. I know what this is like. There is a reason for this. Nobody's interested in hearing any of that. I know so many people that that's what they do is it starts out. I know exactly how you're feeling or I've been there or I know somebody that's been there and this happened or worse. It turns into their a story about them and how their situation was worse than yours. Yeah, don't. No suffering Olympics. That's not helpful. And I don't think they know they're doing it. They just get to talking and the next thing you know, it's, well, when I lost so-and-so and it was like this, so, you know, maybe not flat out telling you that what they went through is worse, but implying it like you're supposed to feel better because, well, at least I didn't have to go through that. Whew. And right, like that's where it pays to be really thoughtful about sharing and really noticing where the other person is at, right? Because I think sometimes people do that in an attempt to connect or normalize an experience, but it can really miss the mark. And that actually requires kind of some skill and nuance to be able to do that in an effective way. And I also think that's even something you can ask of, Hey, are you in a place where you want to share what this is like for you? Or would it help you to know that I experienced the same things when I lost someone? Or do we need to sit in silence? Or do you just want to talk about you? Or sometimes people will actually tell you what they need from you if you ask. And it's not a how can I help make it better? It's a how can I support you in this moment? For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor's skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa Autotech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Autotech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. 
Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Nap Autotech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Nap Autotech offers, contact NapAutotech.com. Sometimes it does mean a lot to talk to somebody that's been there, done that. Like you said, not in the suffering Olympics, but I know that you have a fairly good idea of where I'm at and now I can talk to you and they can be just like, even if it's just an acknowledgement of your feelings or thoughts and all of that, just to be in like, you're not alone. I was there or I didn't quite get there, but it's just something where, yeah, you, you just don't feel like you're the only person that's just not sure how they're going to keep going on. You know, speaking specifically of, of dads and fathers, I remember Chris Rock talking about when his dad passed away after however much time, and I think it was a year or two, and they're kind of like, you need to get over this. Looked at him like, you, you never get over losing your dad. You just learn to live with it. That kind of resonates, just that line of thinking, like, okay, this idea of moving on isn't getting over it, but learning to, to live with this new environment or situation. That's very much true, right? It's not that you're ever not, sad that the person is gone or that you don't wish you could have them back, but you do learn how to integrate it and live with that reality. And part of this, I think, can get into how those deaths happen. Sometimes we talk about anticipatory grief, right? If someone has a long, prolonged illness where people have a chance to plan or prepare or grieve ahead of time or where there's a lot of suffering, Sometimes it almost feels like a relief or a blessing when that suffering is over because it's so awful and we don't want people we care about and love to suffer versus something really sudden or shocking. And I will say, I, I don't actually know if there's any research behind this. This is just me talking anecdotally. But I do think for men, when it comes to their fathers, sometimes their dads can be really old and it's literally never occurred to people that like hey he could fail one day and pass away because there's sort of still this like superman image going on and they almost don't see the changes that have been happening in this person for the past 50 years and then it's almost like a shock in and of itself interesting you bring that up because that's a discussion my brother and i have had my brother lived in la for We'll just say 10 years. It, it could be longer. And then the last maybe five years, he's lived in Chicago. So he comes back intermittently a couple times a year, maybe sees my parents four, six times a year, something of that nature. He sees changes. He sees physical changes. They're m much more apparent, much more vibrant, like attention grabbing to him, where especially these last pushing 15, 20 years of seeing him at the very least once a week, don't necessarily see those changes. Sure, if I look at pictures, it's like, oh, wow. Wow. But yeah, I, I sympathize with that. And then in, in this particular situation, I've never seen my dad sick or in a hospital. Like he's never been in the hospital for anything. He's never had surgery. And then all of a sudden it's this, that by itself was very, somebody's not immortal, you know it, but just shocking. Logically, you know, they're not immortal, but emotionally it's a different process. And some little part of your brain wasn't on board with that message yet. What it really was, and I might've mentioned it in the last episode, is that my, my grandfather had lived into his late 80s. And he was not nearly as active as my, my dad. My dad's, again, not like some athlete, but he's non-sedentary. So I think I, I had reasoned in my head a little bit that I probably got another 8, 10, 12 years with him. And then this happens. Just like, <laughs> Somehow I, I forced this issue by even thinking that. It's like the universe is showing me. I sympathize with that, that forgetting this could happen, right? And as they get older, the probabilities keep going up. 
there can be something really scary about scenarios like this because we like to think that if we can influence and control the things we can, that then bad things won't happen, right? If we stay relatively active, if we eat relatively well, if we do all the kind of health things and don't have major health concerns, we're just going to like age and it's going to go well and we're not going to be that story where some random thing happens that's unexplainable. And then when it does, there's this massive, not only shock, but loss of control. And it's, oh shit, all these things I thought were keeping me safe, maybe aren't. And so that's a loss in and of itself of kind of the that loss of safety or of control or A plus B equals C, except when it doesn't. Lots of resonations there. May have just invented a word, but. But again, You're in a field of fixing, right? This equals this. And then we go back and we replace this and we're good. And then if that doesn't fix it, we dig and dig until we figure it out. And human bodies don't always work like that. Especially like mentally, emotionally, stuff like that. It can really fall apart really fast. And then you're frustrated because it didn't work. And not just frustrated with the the person, but also yourself and thinking about, oh, How dare I think I could have fixed this? What were you thinking? Or could have, should have, would have. Maybe if I'd have did this, said that, they would have understood better. And then, then the behavior would have changed. I screwed. If I'd have phrased that better, if I went to brought this up and brought that up instead and spaghetti. Or even how could I not have seen it, right? So your brother sees these changes really apparently. And some of that does have to do with time and distance, totally. And how often are we really and truly present when we're with another person and not on some degree of autopilot, right? How often are we really looking at them and reading like, how are they moving? What is that facial expression? Oh, look at that, right? Can I notice the shake? Can I notice how I feel when I with him? I think most of the time we're not doing that. Not doing it and not capable without concerted effort. Oh, it takes a ton of intentional effort. Yeah, it's a skill we have to develop. Yeah, this could spiral into a discussion about attention. But grieving requires attention. Oh, definitely. Just like you said, too. Fake it till you make it a little bit with the, the going through the motions, especially like self-care. And to be clear, like you're not faking happiness then. You're just like, I'm a big fan. People don't like this word, but I do, of surrender, right? Like I'm surrendering to the fact that this is a crap day and I'm going to feel like crap the entire day and I'm going to hate the entire day, but I'm going to get up and take that shower and go to work and just accept that it's crap. I think surrender is a fitting word for that. I guess I can think of a few different situations where that word is used and it's generally positive or or a positive outcome i think surrender they get they think of stick them up surrender (laughs) oh i give up (laughs) but you are there is something to be said for i'm giving up with the grief right you're here you're present all right back to the controlling what you can control and accepting what you can't control that surrender falls into that more so than just totally giving up. I'm out. Okay. That's very reasonable. And it is cutting yourself some slack too. Like speaking specifically of, of grief that you should cut yourself a little slack and experience it. You're going to have to experience it because if you don't and you're going to try to uh, avoid it or dampen it, the means of which you're going to do it can start. It just opens up a whole nother can of worms right it's we're we're talking about substance use uh, maybe substance use disorder so many other things we could i guess we don't need the grocery list of different things to try to avoid uh, or minimize pain or suffering but usually the answer to getting through it better or, or in the the most positive of fashions is to embrace the suck to accept that this this does hurt. This hurts bad. And the reason is, is because I cared so much. I felt this strongly about it. 
whatever. I, I loved that dog. Now they're gone. Okay, well, it sucks. Maybe I'm never going to get another dog. Maybe. But if you just cut yourself a little slack and understand that you had this connection with this dog or this person or this activity, you can't do, you can't downhill ski anymore. That would suck. You can't do that anymore because of injuries or age or whatever. Cut yourself some slack. You used to love to do that. Why, why shouldn't it suck? Who shrugs their shoulders and goes, that was that time. Now it's something else. Yes, I should be over it now. It's not helpful and it's not how it works, but people do that. And when we talk about what can we do for ourselves and for other people with grief, that's cut yourself some slack, give yourself some grace and do that for other people, right? If you know someone's grieving, it's a decent time to walk back the expectations a little bit, right? I can see you're having a hard time. You know what? I've got this. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to take that personally. If you're off, I'm going to let it go. I'll check in, but I'm not going to act like it's the end of the world. If you're an employer, maybe we're not worried about how productive that person is for a little bit. Because really, if they're still showing up, maybe that's good enough. When might there be red flags in that work has become the means to avoid? Some people, when they're grieving, throw themselves into their work. It becomes a distraction or a means to try to cope. You know, I hate to use words like responsibility because I don't, I don't think I mean that at all. But if you are aware and you're watching your people and one of them is going through something that they're experiencing grief, they're throwing themselves into their work. How would you even approach that? Like, I, I can make, I can see it for the family to take them aside and bring it up. But if you're on the other end of it, you're the employer, the manager, a coworker, even you'd think they'd be grieving a little bit differently, but they are just, man, ultra focused on work. Is that a healthy way of coping or can it be? Or, or when do the red flags go up and you, you find yourself as a colleague, as a leader, pulling them aside and saying, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't know that this is uh, a good long-term solution for you. And I don't know, that's probably a horrible way to word it, except the, I appreciate what you're doing. Definitely after a loss, if you notice a major change. And any in all reality, whether it's work or anything else, anything can be used as a distraction or an avoidance technique, right? But sometimes it's really measurable with work, right? Okay, previously you were working 40 hours a week. Now I've watched you work 60 for three weeks. Yep, that's a flag. Or maybe it's not even that extreme. Maybe it's 45, maybe it's 50. Maybe you've been late even. And then you're staying three hours later, right? Some of that's really measurable and obvious. I do think that's where sometimes some self-disclosure can be helpful for some normalizing. So saying, pulling someone aside and saying, and this should be real, don't make it up if it's not. But right, that's where if you have some experience with that of, hey, when so-and-so passed away, all I wanted to do was work. I just didn't want to think about it. And I'm worried that might be happening with you. But then it's not shaming because you've just said, hey, I did it too. And it gives them permission to own it if that's what's happening and if they're willing to. Other red flags would be, obviously, if there's any thoughts of self-harm or suicide, those would be red flags. Verbalizations around wishing you had died with that person or instead of the other person. Sometimes instead of the other person, we hear that depending on the type of loss, but even that's a bit of a flag. I'd say emotional ability to the point where it's interrupting daily life, right? They're sort of like the roller coaster of changes in mood that people still have control over for the most part. But if it's like explosions, screaming, swearing, cussing people out, and that's really unusual for that person, that would be concerning. Not getting out of bed for days. Most people after grief, they take some bereavement leave, so that's normal. But if you have a 
really rock solid employee and someone passes away and then you literally hear nothing for four days, they don't even call in, I would be worried. The explosions and cussing people out, we have a term for that in auto repair called flat rate technician. So yeah, that's that's a larger problem if that's normal. (laughs) And there's actually a spectrum of that of hey, I'm cussing at this car because of this identifiable stressor. I still don't approve of that behavior, but okay, fine. I can play ball with that. But then if they're doing it to a customer, that would be concerning. Oh, yeah. I don't, usually it's cars and service advisors. They're the ones on the receiving end. So, but I think that's normal. Generally accepted normal in our profession. We'll go with generally accepted. I don't know if I'd call it it's normal in that it happens and it's typical. I wouldn't call that normative behavior in any other profession. But even that, right? Okay, let's say that's generally accepted and then someone is just silent for days. I'd be worried. A little bit of a, tw- a tweak like that would be normal and, and we'd be like, okay, yeah, we'll just give some grace. But major personality shifts, I'd be asking a question. Hey, how are you? I've, I've noticed this. And I think even as an employer or a manager, it it doesn't even have to be a work issue. You can even say, I'm not even dogging you about work. I just, as a person, I'm concerned. I was just going to say that. If if you're coming over genuinely out of concern for this person, either as a human, as a coworker, as a member of your team, you're not worried about the machine right now of, of the shop or the business. You're worried about the person. It would be hard for me to believe too many would be rubbed the wrong way that way. Yeah, If you're coming from a place of genuine concern, I'm sure somebody out there would <laughs> turn around and cuss, cuss you out and scream and holler. But for the most part, I think most people like to know that people do give a rip about them. Uh, I can also see the owner-manager feeling obligated to go over there. Like, oh boy, here we go. Now I got to go and talk to him about this. I can see that happening. Obligation implies some type of burden. Why is it a burden to ask someone if they're okay? I wonder if they're scared of the answer, especially if they're expecting a, yeah, I'm fine. Good. All right. That's that vulnerability piece of, okay, I'm going to pay lip service to this, but I don't actually want to have to deal with anything. Which is more about them than about genuine caring. I did my uh, good deed. I checked on them. They're good. And then if they answer, right, they answer, I'm struggling or whatever, uh, implying that things may not be so going so good. And then it's, now I got to deal with this. I don't know. I'm not saying there's a lot of people that do that. I don't even know if I can think of somebody offhand that does that. But I do think especially nowadays, we're really good at getting into our own bubbles and our own worlds and actually dealing with somebody face-to-face becomes uncomfortable. It's almost like they're going to start opening up to you. You're like, all right, I'm going to go back to my office. You text me this, okay? And then, then we'll get through this, pal. But that's distancing. Let's push that away. A screen is a distance. Text me, it's a distance, right? I- I'm going to ask this in a public place so you're less likely to give me an honest answer is an attempt to distance. And and there's a big difference between kind of like a good humored internal, ah, shit, like I opened up a can of worms there. I was not anticipating. But then you go genuinely connect and care anyways versus something that I think is a little different, which is the like, Holding away something gross. I think like holding away a screaming baby where you're like, oh, I don't really want to deal with you right now, but okay. Emotions are messy. Sometimes they betray you too. That's true. More than thinking about emotional states of grieving, we think about what are we trying to do with grief? Let's give grief a purpose. First, it's the notification and shock, right? That's when you first learn about it. There's the shock. There's the feeling of loss. Notification and shock. Next is where the work happens, which is experiencing the loss, which is feeling the emotions. And you have to feel it emotionally and cognitively. Sometimes with people, I call this the year of first. First Christmas, first Thanksgiving, first birthday. 
know there's going to be a year of firsts. And that's probably going to be the most painful. And you're going to relive it in a variety of ways, right? Third is reintegration, right? How do we reorganize? How do we restructure internally and externally? This is that adjustment phase. Grandma passed away, so we don't go there for Christmas anymore. So then we, and this is the place where grief requires attention. What are we going to do instead? And how is, how are we going to incorporate her memory into it? Or I go to visit dad every week, right? Okay, so now I'm not doing that. What am I doing instead? That's the attention piece. That's the point of grief is to help people move on in life and move forward where that person can still be a part of life without being a literal part of life. It, it becomes a little more symbolic or metaphorical. And there's a line, I think it comes from a song. I don't know what song, so I'm not quoting it, but it's the line of grief is love persisting. So I was thinking immediately like a job, maybe you don't love the job, but if you lose the job, you're grieving because not so much that you loved the actual job, but you loved the comfort it provided you financially and whatever. So yeah, I think that terrific definition. So grief isn't bad. Sometimes it's just a sign that we loved something. And actually, as someone who cares a lot about people's emotional well-being, I'd be a lot more concerned about someone who wasn't grieving than someone who was. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's, I'm relieved that I, I, I'm not having to deal with it, not having to go through it, but it does weigh on me about people I know that have had to and that I, I think about it a fair bit, not obsessively, but just a few friends and family members that have gone through losses and now it's, I just had a brush with it and that sucked. And they had to do, they had to go through the whole thing and as uh, empathetic as I may have thought I was, probably not as much as I could be and not as much as I will be. And then the scary thought of someday being even more, <laughs> almost that dread if things play out the way we would diagram them out as proper or correct, that my parents pass before I do, just dreading that day, dreading that those feelings and all of that, just acknowledging that those are going to be some really horrible days. And then knowing people that have already done it and just feeling just feeling really bad. Oh, man. It, it sucked having this brush with it. You had to go through the whole thing. Ugh. So, yeah. Almost a fitting end to the episode to just let it sit in silence a little bit to just ponder all of it and not, not so much all just the darkness of it all either. Just also that, that, that reassurance of, whatever that thing was or, or person that you lost, that you're grieving about, that having that reinforcement of that grief being that reflection, a good thing, right? Because if it was just a, oh, okay, yeah, it's gone. They're gone. Circle of life. And that wouldn't have been so great either. Maybe you weren't as engaged as you could have been. Feeling strong, difficult emotions isn't a bad thing. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's a negative emotion. I don't ever want to feel it. But actually, sometimes it's really good to feel it. And yeah, they're intense, but they don't have to be scary. Especially in this profession, and not just this profession, but many of the heavily male-dominated blue-collar, not that automotive isn't necessarily purely blue collar, but still blue collar ish. When you get into the emotion stuff, it's not normal to really talk about it or learn to even dive into them, whether they're your own or somebody else's. As much as we want to know about how things work, that's one area we have, <laughs> you avoid. <laughs> you want to know how everything works except for that. Right. I'm going to stay out of that. Management, learning a little bit of 
psychology and dealing with clients, maybe coming up with marketing ideas, stuff like that. But you know, stay away from that, especially when it concerns me and or my employees or colleagues, something like that. These are pretty good topics. Tough to work through because it's it's just not that common that we talk about this stuff. And then what to do with it. We can talk about it. But then what what can we do with that? What where what how can I apply this to myself, my my home life, my work life, my if I managing or own a business, how can I apply that to running my business to be a better leader, to be a better boss, better manager, better employee, whatever. So yeah, not normal and it's hard to just figure out where to where to go with it even though you know it exists and needs to be uh, addressed how to present it to listeners and uh, whoever to take something with it just with like the last episode there's people that have been there like and reach out because know what it's like but can others listen to that and maybe feel feel better knowing they're not alone with however they're feeling. I don't know about you, but I was always taught to shield it a little bit. You stuff that you don't you don't show anybody anything like that. Much to my wife's chagrin, but I'm from northern Minnesota. We were definitely taught to stuff it and we don't do those things, but there's a million examples of that not working, so I don't abide by that rule anymore. There's not very much literature supporting it. That's the thing, right? When we actually look at emotional intelligence, every bit of research we have says people get happier, they live longer, they form more meaningful connections, they have more mental toughness and flexibility and resiliency. They're better able to think logically. They're better able to face adversity. Outside of the actual feeling it portion, there's really no downside. And even the feeling it portion, that's what gives life some vibrancy. That's living in color. Otherwise, you're just living in black and white, which feels a bit flat. That is a really terrific way to tie up this episode. Thank you. A plus for me. Yes. A plus for Margaret Lay, licensed marriage and family therapist, and now a owner of Equilibrium Therapy Services. So... If you're interested in checking that out, checking into her services, just really you can Google her name, Margaret Light. It comes right up. Yeah, I think she's even looking to offer services. I am. So yeah, you can do equilibriumtherapyservices.org or margaretlight.com. If you want therapy, you do have to be in the state of Minnesota because our licenses are state specific, but there are some other options as well. So definitely feel free to reach out. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. This was great. I look forward to further, further episodes. I think we have some really interesting topics about attention, attention deficit disorder, which is a horrifically named. I've heard it better. I, I feel like it's better attention distribution disorder rather than deficit. But anyways, that's a, Another episode, plus I think we have a few other ideas, so. Lots of ideas and mice. I'll always come back on. Great. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this. And go back and listen to a few of the other episodes with Margaret covering various just mental health topics that we probably don't talk enough about. I feel like I should mention that grief was covered by Carm on his Remarkable Results podcast. It's episode 885. Uh, so if you're looking for a little bit more or maybe a different angle on grief, give that a listen. Let me know what you think of it. Like always, if you have ideas for episodes or would like to be on the podcast, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find. Email me at mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com or find me on social media. Hack my account like some other people have. And until next time, take care. 
You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.